Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. In 2000, my family moved into a mostly African-American neighborhood in central Atlanta to start a church and do neighborhood ministry with my beloved pastor, Leroy Barber, and his family. In our new neighborhood were junkyards, legal and illegal dumps, hazardous chemical plants, and a prison. Sewage overflows contaminated the creek that our kids played in. Friends' houses contained crumbling lead paint, and many of the kids had asthma from breathing Atlanta's polluted air. There's a mentality that says about toxic threats, not in my backyard. Leroy's perspective on that was everything is in our backyard. That was Rusty Pritchard, who we'll hear more from today on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot. Gabe will be with us shortly. When you hear the term environmental justice, maybe you wince back because it's a term you're not comfortable with. But on today's Q Ideas, we're asking you to lean in and engage in the conversation. From the start in 2007, Gabe and his team at Q have been trying to engage the conversation about environmental justice, or creation care, whichever you want to call it. For example, in 2014 at a Q conference, Gabe led a conversation with Mitch Hescox of the Evangelical Environmental Network and Lindsay Mosley of the American Lung Association. The talk was called, What is Environmental Health? Now here's a portion of that discussion, edited for us today on Q Ideas. The thing that becomes controversial about this topic is when you start talking about the environment and climate change and in the Christian community, that can be a debatable topic. Uh, in the science community, it's not as debatable, um, but in the public square, it is still debatable. And, and, and even though I know both of um, our friends here feel strongly about climate change and the science that backs up climate change, I do realize there's skepticism towards that. And I think that's part of one of the humps the church has to start to work through is to how do we, how can we all get along even if we don't believe in climate change? I want you to be able to just take a second to address, you know, if they don't believe that, is there a way to still work together to think about our environment and pollution and what stewardship and creation care ought to be? Sure, I'll take that one on. I think the, the first thing we have to see is that things like climate change, like abortion, have really become a culture war. Michael Gerson, a few months ago in a Washington Post column, did a fantastic job of saying that. And I think, just like this conference represents, we need to get away from culture wars. We need to sit down and not talk in sound bites, but sit down and listen and speak to each other to find the things. And, and even if ultimately you don't believe as I do, and you can agree that we need to help the poor, that clean energy hopefully is a good thing. Renewables are a good thing. So there's some places that we can find common ground to start while I'll do my best to convince you that climate change is real. <laughs> and I think I'll, I'll just add quickly to that. Um, the American Lung Association is involved in working to reduce carbon pollution, a major contributor to climate change. We might debate costs. You might debate issues, source, mm -hmm. reason. But temperatures are rising. And what that means from a respiratory health perspective is that ozone levels are going to increase. 
And ozone levels are triggers for all kinds of health problems. Also, very strongly established science, not debatable. Um, So the connection to caring for God's creation and caring for the poor who are most directly and most vulnerable uh, to these kinds of changes are places that I think that we can start to have conversations. And I think adding on to what Lindsay said is that we, I think the dialogue we want to change is that creation care is a matter of life. It's biblical, if you know, and we believe this very strongly, that every social justice issue that we talk about in this room, whether it is immigration or poverty or water or disease, really has its foundation in how we care about God's earth, God's creation. So we need to stop thinking necessarily about trees and protecting them, but it's important, but what are its human health impacts around the world on people? Yeah, and I think that's a place where there's been a lot of progress over the last decade in Mm -hmm. the church just embracing and really going back maybe to what historically the church had understood that we're responsible to be stewards of God's creation. I mean, this goes back to Genesis 1, that this is part of our role as human beings and having dominion is that we steward it, that we think about future generations. And I think sometimes the people get lost in the things they don't feel like they can control as much, but we realize there's a lot of things we can control. I mean, I have children, two of which uh, suffer with respiratory challenges in New York, asthma rates are off the charts, um, and, and that's truly through pollution. There, there's a real man-made contribution to that um, that's happening. Talk to us, what are you seeing right now as the biggest issues, and when we think about American cities specifically, what are you seeing as a couple of the themes of issues, whether it's diseases, sicknesses, or certain toxins or chemicals that are really in our environment that are contributing to a lot of sicknesses and disease? There are about half of the population of the United States lives in areas where the air is actually dangerous to breathe. About 154 million people still live in areas where the air quality, the pollutants in the air, have made that air quality unsafe to breathe according to standards that the latest science says are not strict enough, which means a lot of people are exposed to dangerous levels of air pollution and don't know it. They have a slow impact over time. Particle pollution, uh, for example, from coal-fired power plants in your neighborhoods, industrial facilities, from automobiles, um, lodges deep in your lungs. It's linked to lung cancer, heart disease, uh, a whole host of things, triggers heart attacks, um, asthma attacks. These are things that people experience. I mean, I'm sure that there's no one in this room who doesn't know someone who's had a heart attack, an asthma attack, who suffers from heart disease, air pollution is a major trigger for these things. And and I think that's a lot of what we have to talk about for us. You know, we've certainly spent the past year working on mercury being emitted into the air. You know, if you watch the thing that I did with Gabe, you know, one in six children in the United States have elevated levels of mercury, which causes brain damage, lower IQ, heart effects, could be linked to autism and other things. Heightened along with that, and we, you know, we think of mercury and other heavy metals, but also pesticides. If just last week, a report that analyzed data from the Centers for Disease Control, that there's been an increase in autism-related things from 2008, from 2002 to 2008, of 78% of our children. In fact, along with that, as a geneticist from the University of California, Irvine said, you know, we've done all the genetic tests we can do. We don't think it's genetic. It's environmental. And so we need to figure out the ways to doing it. We put in, you know, 70,000 new chemicals have been on the market in the past 20 years, and we don't know how they work together. Hmm. 
So let's talk about mercury for a second, because that is a topic that I think you know a lot of people are becoming more educated about, and specifically in Congress right now, that's something that's being worked toward is talking about regulations on mercury. Talk about where we're at in that discussion, and a little bit of the philosophy behind. You know, what, what made common sense to me was just the the idea that what you're wanting is for companies who are putting this kind of pollution into the air to at least uh, empty their own trash, so to speak, not put it in our water, not right. put it in our soil. And I'll start, Lindsay can add in, because it's, it's actually Lindsay and I work jointly together on this issue, and we have been. What happened is, real quickly, um, in 1990, the Clean Air Act was revived under the first President Bush. It was a bipartisan, overwhelming, supported issue. But it's taken 20 years for many of the things that were part of that law to begin to be implemented. In last December, the Environmental Protection Agency, who's right next door, issued a ruling on what they called the MATS rule, mercury and air toxin standard, that would take 90% of the mercury from the coal burned in coal-fired power plants. Many people fought that because they, some people said that mercury doesn't do any damage. And we argued that it was a sort of a pro-life thing, protecting our children, one in six children. And it does have cost. You know, it will cost each of us 3 to $5 a month to take the mercury out of coal-fired power plants. That that's a cup of coffee a day. And so we believe that it's worth the good of the all of saving it. And the controls exist. I used to, one of the benefits I have, I spent 12 years being in the utility industry, 20 years being a pastor, and now I do this. I used to sell the equipment that will take the mercury out of the coal. So I have firsthand knowledge of that experience. Yeah, I think, Mitch, your story of being a pastor that, that then started to go into this path because of what you were seeing and the effects that you could have uh, and the burden that you had for the poor and for people uh, is, is a great story that will resonate with people here. What, what would you say to the church leaders, people here who um, maybe try to stay away from these conversations and topics because they might feel too political or a little bit divisive? How would you say as a pastor speaking to other pastors, um, how, how would you recommend they talk about this? What can they do to be helpful on these kinds of topics? Let's talk about some regular creation care education. Let's begin the dialogue that God says to care for his earth. Psalm 24, the whole earth and everything in it is the Lord's. You know, Colossians chapter 1, you know, the whole earth was created for and by Jesus Christ, not for us. So start the dialogue there and begin that dialogue of seeing the impacts and more than that, open yourself up to there. I mean, literally, you can go upstairs. There's lots of people that in the past 20 years have written about creation care. And I would ask you to open your hearts up to look at it. And if anything, quit listening to sound bites, whether it's on CNN or Fox News, and, you know, start studying. There was a lot more to this talk with Mitch and Lindsay called What is Environmental Health? If you'd like to hear the rest, go to qideas.org and in the search window, search for the keyword environment. Gabe joins us now. And before we talk more about Creation Care, Gabe, with Summer here, you and the Q team are starting something special. Tell us more. We're excited as a team for something new that I want you to take note of. We're doing something called Q&A. It's our summer series. It's taking place online where you're going to actually get to hear our top talks from Q2018. And so the first talk is going to be a talk on reparations by Duke Kwan. And we're going to be interacting with Duke around this talk that stirred up a ton of conversation. It was helpful. It was convicting. It was imaginative. And it really created quite a buzz around the event this year about how can we as leaders imagine what it looks like to not only 
repent of sin, reconcile, but then to repair. What does the work of repair look like and how does the gospel call us to it? It's very exciting. And so I want you to join us June 14th on Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be releasing that talk and it'll be a replay of it with me and Duke talking. You're having the opportunity to ask questions and it's just going to be a great way for our entire community. Everybody who's a part of Q, even if you didn't attend the conference, now you're actually able to participate, invite your friends to sit in on what was just one of those incredible talks, incredible moments at Q. As we continue on with this podcast, the topic we're discussing kind of goes a little bit in alignment with the discussion we'll be having with Duke, and it's the idea of environmental justice and how do we map it? What does it look like for us to better see our cities and our communities and understand are there real lines of demarcation of those who are the poor to those who might have wealth? What are the ways in which our cities have been designed? What are the ways in which some of our most toxic environmental sites are showing up in some of the poorest neighborhoods? Is this by coincidence or was this planned? And leading this conversation in this talk today is Dr. Rusty Pritchard. Rusty's been a longtime friend of Q, all the way back at the very beginning, in fact, in 2007. He's a natural resource economist. He's a strategist and a strategic advisor for Tier Fund, an organization that's doing great work to help overcome some of the worst effects of poverty and disasters. He's also a bird watcher. And I don't know how many of you are into bird watching. I'm seeing it's a trend that's been increasing where more and more people are taking interest in watching these little creatures and learning about them. I know myself, Rusty's been one of those guys who's helped me get involved in starting to appreciate bird watching and start keeping a life list. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go look it up. But a fun enterprise. But in fact, it was a couple of years ago, Rusty at one of our events told me he had spotted his 500th bird. So he'd finally seen his 500th species and was celebrating that because it had been many, many, many years of tracking birds. And so that's the kind of man who comes to us today who has a very intricate view of God's creation, of how things are meant to be, how they ought to be, but also has been able to recognize where we start to see that go off the rails, where we start to see human intervention get involved in ways that can actually lead to unjust behaviors, unjust systems, ways in which we create and model and map our societies that don't always benefit every human being. And of course, at Q, we want to understand this. We want to learn about how to help every human being flourish. And sometimes that means taking a close look at our cities, at our maps, at the lines that have been drawn and why. And so I invite you to just listen to this. If you want to watch this talk, you can go online to qideas.org. This week, it'll be on our homepage. In future weeks, just go back and search Rusty Pritchard in a talk called Mapping Environmental Justice, because he's going to give a couple slides that show maps and give you a real sense of how this takes place in cities. But let's listen in now to Rusty help us better understand the subject of environmental justice. The American Environmental Justice Movement was born in 1982, and it began with the largest civil rights action since Dr. King marched from Selma to Montgomery 20 years before. But it started like this. In the summer of 1978, near Raleigh, North Carolina, a guy named Buck Ward needed to get rid of some toxic waste. The EPA had just restricted the use of PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, a powerful and dangerous carcinogen that had been used to produce components for electrical utilities. Buck Ward's electrical company had a lot of it. 
And he ought to have paid for his stockpile to have been taken to a registered toxic waste facility, but instead, because that would have been expensive. He paid a business associate, Robert J. Burns, to make the chemicals disappear. Over many summer nights in 1978, Burns drove a tanker truck back and forth over highways in 14 North Carolina counties, slowly dripping Ward's entire inventory of PCBs, 31,000 gallons of oily poison, over 240 miles of highway shoulders. The deed was discovered, Burns confessed, and he and Ward spent a little bit of time in jail. Four years later, the state of North Carolina began scraping dirt to clean up those highway shoulders, creating 6,000 truckloads of contaminated soil that needed a place to go. The place, it was decided by state leaders, would be a site in rural North Carolina, rural Warren County, one of the poorest counties in North Carolina, in a community that happened to be 80% black. Having been excluded from decisions and outlawed in the appeals, local residents laid down their own bodies on the dirt road in front of the incoming trucks, and black church leaders and civil rights leaders from around the country showed up. They marched and protested, and they won national attention. 500 people were arrested, but after six weeks, the protest fizzled, and the toxins were buried in a shallow grave. But Warren County became the landmark case inspiring a movement for environmental justice, the moment when the term environmental racism was coined. And then study after study began to reveal environmental racism in facility siting. A report in 1987 showed that race was the single most important factor, more important than poverty or land prices, in determining where toxic waste facilities would be located. In 1990, another study found that 43% of the people who lived within one mile of a toxic facility were people of color, not just black people, Latinos as well, people who made up only 25% of the general population. The map of environmental hazards in America is eerily similar to the map where black and Latino people live. This hits home for me. In 2000, my family moved into a mostly African-American neighborhood in central Atlanta to start a church and do neighborhood ministry with my beloved pastor, Leroy Barber, and his family. In our new neighborhood were junkyards, legal and illegal dumps, hazardous chemical plants, and a prison. Sewage overflows contaminated the creek that our kids played in. Friends' houses contained crumbling lead paint, and many of the kids had asthma from breathing Atlanta's polluted air. There's a mentality that says about toxic threats, not in my backyard. Leroy's perspective on that was, everything is in our backyard. I want to show you a slide that is a map of race in Atlanta. It's based on a really cool tool from the University of Virginia, where each dot represents one individual from the census studies. Blue areas are majority white, green areas are African-American, red are Asian neighborhoods, and orange, Latino neighborhoods. There's not just one color line in Atlanta, but you see the historic line between white Atlanta and black Atlanta from blue in the north and green in the south. So Leroy and I used the EPA's online mapping tool to find where toxic facilities were located on this map because, well, they don't always say toxic facility on the sign in the front. So if you put that slide up, we'll show you where those tend to be located. You can see them clustered in black neighborhoods, green, but you can also see clusters at the top right in Latino neighborhoods and Asian neighborhoods where it's orange and red. Do you see the lack of dots in this map of central Atlanta in the white neighborhoods, the blue areas? 
children growing up in these neighborhoods feel the disparities in their bodies and they see it with their eyes. If you believe, as Romans 1.20 seems to say, that we're to take a lesson from creation to understand what God is like, I shudder to imagine what the lesson these kids take might be in the face of these inequalities. In both of these situations, Warren County and Atlanta, the causes of environmental harms are products or services that are consumed by people far away, and the harms seem to pile up on people who don't deserve them. In that situation, we naturally want to assign blame. But the people who consume the goods whose production caused the wastes that impacted the people in our neighborhood and in Warren County, they were not enemies. They really didn't know that we existed. They didn't care whether we existed. They weren't doing anything deliberately wrong. And yet suffering in poor neighborhoods was a side effect. They might want to make it right if they knew about it, but our system prevents them from ever knowing what they've done. That seems diabolical in the technical sense. The twisting and corruption of relationships so that harm comes surely and cruelly with no conscious human malevolence seems like a work of the evil one. The dump truck drivers would tell you that they were just doing their job, as were the police. The state of North Carolina and EPA would say that they were just responding to a public health emergency. Buck Ward and Robert J. Burns, who sprayed the PCBs all over North Carolina, racist, I don't know. Dumb as a sack of hammers? Yeah. But the amazing thing is that even after they dispersed the waste so widely, the system that we created managed to reconcentrate it and put it in black people's backyards. That is a powerful racist system. The lesson here is that you don't need individuals with malevolent racist hatred to end up with a racist result. Nothing feels more natural in a white supremacist society than that filth and contamination should be borne by black bodies. To me, that's what white supremacy means. Anyone in that chain of events accused of racism could plausibly deny it, and yet the systemic racism continues. What if we decided instead that polluting facilities were no longer able to be cited in areas that already had one? What if we stopped heaping up environmental problems on the communities that can least afford to defend themselves? As a thought experiment, what if we put landfills and treatment facilities where consumption is highest instead of where it's lowest? What would the world look like if we'd been distributing environmental harms fairly all these years? The map of environmental justice would be redrawn if our economy were oriented to restoration. We need restoration here at home, but we need to think, too, about the global economy. We're tied together with our global neighbors through trade and through a shared atmosphere and shared oceans, also with bonds of solidarity with the global church. What we do with our waste in the rich world impacts the rest of the world. And just because the diabolical world system provides us with a cover of anonymity and plausible deniability, it's not so in God's economy. God made us stewards of all creation at the beginning, and we are invited to join Jesus in the gospel work of renewing and restoring all things. We're called to cultivate and to protect creation, and if we feel like there's a tension, if we're faced with choosing between true economic prosperity and clean water and clean air for everyone, that choice means we're doing it wrong. If an economic system captures our loyalty, but compromises the health of children and the ability of all communities to flourish, we're listening to the wrong master. Thank you.
always love listening to people who've thought long and hard about these subjects and just help us all get a little bit smarter. I could have listened to Rusty longer. We could have looked at more maps. He really can do a deep dive into cities and locations. But I hope for now it just sparks your imagination to think a different way as you're driving through your city, through your communities, through your neighborhoods, to see the different industries that show up, to see the different places where those who maybe don't have as much influence or more of a voice are actually sometimes the ones receiving kind of the worst benefits of living in a total proximity that's not necessarily looking out for their best interest. Well, as we continue forward with Q, I want to invite you as well to consider how could you partner with us this fall, October 25th. It's kind of the biggest night of the year for Q, and we celebrate this where hundreds of locations, hundreds of leaders come together and say, we want to host our own evening talking about the injustices, the needs, the opportunities, and celebrate the wins that are taking place in our cities. Conversations like what we just heard from Rusty are incredibly impactful when they're happening on the local level, and you can actually address causes and concerns that are happening in your own neighborhood, in your own backyard. And so I want to invite you to consider hosting this, especially if you've been listening, if you've come to the Q Conference, if you've watched any of our Q Talks online, we really believe this is the next step of action where we can't just listen and learn for ourselves, but we would do better to our communities. We would represent, I believe, what the gospel is calling us to do. If we would bring people together and say, let's learn together, let's work together, let's be part of the solution. And so on the evening of October 25th, a two-hour event very much feels like a town hall event where it's a combination of presenters that we are broadcasting nationwide and globally, worldwide, combined with local talks where leaders like you actually select what are the talks my community needs to hear. And then you invite everybody out to be a part of this amazing evening. Tens of thousands of people participate. It's just a wonderful thing. And you can learn more about that at qcommons.com. And when you go there, look at what might be best for you. Maybe you should host it in your city. Maybe for some of you, it's a conversation you'd like to equip your people on in your church. And for the first time this year, we're going to actually allow people to host it in their home where you can actually invite friends and neighbors over into your home to create and host a great conversation. The theme this year is called The Power of We, and it's designed to start to bring together all of us to see the power of us working together versus as individuals to try to solve problems. And so we hope that you'll join with us there. So check it out, qcommons.com. And until next time, we hope you have a wonderful week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.